the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The WLCC Brandon. Faith Talk Tampa. Download the Faith Talk Tampa app or listen on TuneIn and Odyssey. The following is sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries and is pre recorded. There are no obstacles for God. None at all. We've been singing some wonderful songs reminding us of the faithfulness of God reminding us that when we can't see him, when we're down, he's there. He is always faithful to keep his word. And that really should be an encouragement to everyone who knows Christ as Savior, because it means that God will keep his word in your life. Don't know how. Things may look very improbable. You maybe can't figure it out. There may look like there's no remedy It certainly was the case with the Jewish people and God's promise to deliver them from Egypt, even though the darkest hour in their history was upon them. Think about that. All that they had going against them. And God said, I have promised to deliver you out of this oppressed situation. And he would do it. He would do it. He did do it. We discovered through a very special child by the name of Moses, born at a time when other Jewish males were being killed. This court hearing is very much stacked against Stephen, which we have been seeing as Pastor Steve has been teaching us. So as we're going through the series, I think we can all see the injustice that is unfolding against Stephen. I sometimes wonder what would have happened if Stephen's accusers, after hearing his defense, would have withdrawn the charges against him. Well, let's ponder that for a while. Uh, I'd like to come back to that later, but keep it in mind as we are going through today's verse by verse with Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. What a horrible time for the Jewish people. What a horrible time, a time of unrelenting oppression, a time of intense suffering under forced hard labor a time of unimaginable pain of having their infants taken from them and drowned in the Nile. And yet, with all of this suffering and no remedy in sight, the time, we read, was drawing near. That 400-year period was almost over when God said he would deliver his people and bring them to the promised land. But how would he do this? How would he do this when a new Pharaoh was so violently opposed to the Jewish people? Listen, there are no obstacles for God. None at all. We've been singing some wonderful songs reminding us of the faithfulness of God, reminding us that when we can't see him, when we're down, he's there. He is always faithful to keep his word. And that really should be an encouragement to everyone who knows Christ 
as Savior, because it means that God will keep his word in your life. Don't know how. Things may look very improbable. You maybe can't figure it out. There may look like there's no remedy. It certainly was the case with the Jewish people and God's promise to deliver them from Egypt, even though the darkest hour in their history was upon them. Think about that. All that they had going against them. And God said, I have promised to deliver you out of this oppressed situation. And he would do it. He would do it. He did do it, we discover, through a very special child by the name of Moses, born at a time when other Jewish males were being killed. And Stephen tells us, as he moves on about the birth of Moses, God's preservation of Moses, and Moses' initial attempts to deliver the Jewish people. So we read, starting in verse 20, it was at this time that Moses was born, and he was lovely, or beautiful, you could translate it, in the sight of God, and he was nurtured three months in his father's home. And after he had been set outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in words and deeds. Now Stephen introduces us to Moses by saying that it was at this time, really the lowest point in Israel's history, that he was born. Now remember what Stephen has been accused of. Stephen has been accused of speaking against Moses. That's what one of the charges was against him. He speaks against Moses. So to answer this charge, he goes out of his way to speak of Moses with the greatest respect, the greatest praise, the greatest admiration. Notice how positively Stephen describes Moses. First, he describes him as lovely in the sight of God. I believe it's the NIV which translates this beautiful, but the thought isn't that he was physically beautiful. I mean, what baby isn't physically beautiful? But that's not the thought. The thought is that God's favor was upon him. God looked upon him with favor. In God's sight, Moses was special. Moses had God's approval. This was a special child destined to be used greatly by God. And then Stephen explains that unlike other Jewish males born at this time, the parents of Moses did not abandon him or throw him into the Nile River. And the reason for this is explained not here, but it is explained in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23. It says, by faith, Moses, when he was born, it means the parents of Moses. Moses didn't have faith when he was born. So I'm at the parents of Moses. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, because they saw he was a beautiful child, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. So the parents of Moses, we learn, were believers in the Lord. They were true believers in the Lord, and they exercised their faith. They placed their faith in God by hiding their son for three months, because somehow, somehow they understood in a way that scripture doesn't explain, but they understood that Moses was special and favored by God. And as Exodus tells us, at the end of those three months, his parents put him in a wicker basket covered with tar and pitch, and then they placed him in the basket on the banks of the Nile, where he was discovered by Pharaoh's daughter, taken into her home and adopted as her own son. And because he was raised as a member of the royal family. He was, as Stephen states in verse 22, educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in words and deeds. 
Now, what this tells us about Moses is that he was very qualified to be Israel's leader. Since he was highly educated, he was a good speaker, and he was a man of action. And by the way, this comment about being a man of power in words reveals that years later, as you'll recall, when God told Moses to speak to Pharaoh to let my people go, go back to Egypt, speak to Pharaoh, Moses makes a number of protests. Remember that to God, that he's slow of speech. He's not eloquent. Listen, that's just an excuse. That's all it was, an excuse on his part to try to get out of this task. In reality, as Stephen tells us, Moses was an excellent speaker. He was an eloquent man. As Stephen puts it, a man of power in words and deeds. So don't think of Moses anymore as someone who was slow of speech and couldn't be quick-witted and be articulate. Not true. So Stephen has spoken very highly of Moses. Far from blaspheming him, as he was accused of doing, He's given Moses the highest of compliments and praise, saying he was favored by God. He received the greatest education of his day, and he was a born leader. So in essence, Stephen is telling us that Moses was uniquely qualified to be Israel's deliverer. And that's why Stephen continues to give his defense before the Sanhedrin. He goes on to speak of the initial attempts made by Moses to be that deliverer. So we read in verse 23 here, but when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. Now in this statement, Stephen tells us that when Moses was nearing 40 years of age, he decided to visit his brethren. By brethren, it means the Jewish people, as he says, the sons of Israel, his own people, his kinsmen. But this wasn't a social call, not at all. It means that Moses had made the decision to help the Jewish people. In other words, he had come to the conclusion that he was the one that God had chosen to deliver the people. See, according to Hebrews, verses 24 and 25 of chapter 11, Moses chose to identify with the Jewish people rather than the Egyptians. And here's what the writer to the Hebrews tells us about that decision. He says, starting in verse 24, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. And in making this choice, Moses was stating that he was ready to lead this nation, his nation, out of Egypt to the land that God had promised Abraham and his descendants. Now, you may wonder why Moses would think this way. After living all of his life like an Egyptian, why would he think this way? And why at this particular point in his life would he even care for the welfare of the Jewish people? And why would he assume that he was the one to be their deliverer? Well, notice the way Stephen puts it in verse 23. He says, it entered his mind to visit his brethren. Now, knowing what we know from the rest of scripture about the sovereignty of God and how he inexplicably moves upon people to accomplish his will, it appears that what is behind this statement, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, is that God put it on the heart or the mind, if you will, of Moses to visit 
his brethren. In other words, God moved upon his thought process so that he decided the time was right to renounce the Egyptian culture and identify with the Jewish people as being one of them so that he would help them by delivering them. While there's always a certain element of mystery as to how God works in the human heart, there are a number of contributing factors that would have played into this work of God in the heart and mind of Moses. For example, we know from Exodus 2 that God had providentially worked it out so that the birth mother of Moses, the one who gave him up, that she was allowed to nurse him for an extended period of time, most likely several years, which would have given her the opportunity to tell Moses who he was who the Jewish people were, their history, God's promises to them, and that he was favored by God and she and his dad knew that he was the one favored by God to lead the Jewish people. It would also make sense that Moses knew that the 400-year period that God had told Abraham that the Jewish people would be in Egypt, that that was coming to a close. That was just math. He could have figured that one out very easily. So with his unique background, his education, his skills, he must have put it all together and concluded that he was the one to deliver the Jewish nation and that the time for this deliverance was now, it was ready, and that the Jewish people then would understand his role and would follow him. But that's not what happened. Stephen tells us in the following verses what happened. Verses 24 through 29 And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and he took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. On the following day, he appeared to them as they were fighting together and he tried to reconcile them in peace saying, men, your brethren, why do you injure one another? But the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him aside saying, who made you a ruler and judge over us? You don't mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? At this remark, Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, what we read here is that on two consecutive days, Moses saw an injustice being done to his fellow Jews, and he tried to intervene and rescue them. The first incident involved a Jewish man being unjustly treated and abused by an Egyptian. And Moses intervened and rescued this Jewish man by killing the Egyptian. Exodus chapter 2 says that Moses buried the Egyptian in the sand, hoping to hide his murder and to keep it a secret. And by this action of striking down the Egyptian, we read that Moses assumed, he supposed, he assumed that the Jewish people would understand that God was giving them salvation from the Egyptians by his hand. He thought it would be obvious seeing who he was, what kind of man he was, and what he did to this Egyptian, but they did not understand. The second incident took place the following day when Moses saw now two Jewish men fighting each other, and he tried to bring about reconciliation. But they rejected his attempt at reconciliation with the one who was injuring the other, challenging his right to be their judge and leader, even asking if Moses intended to kill him 
like he killed the Egyptian the day before. And when Moses heard these words, when he became aware that others were aware that he had murdered an Egyptian, he knew he was in big trouble. He knew that he had to flee Egypt because having broken now all ties with the royal family, he would now be viewed as a Jewish insurrectionist attempting to lead a rebellion to overthrow the Egyptians and therefore Pharaoh would attempt to kill him. So Moses fled Egypt to live with Gentile desert dwellers in an area known as Midian, probably where the contemporary nation of Saudi Arabia is now located. And he lived there in Midian, we're told, for the next 40 years, having married and then fathered two children. Now, I want to stop here and consider how Stephen's words about the first 40 years of the life of Moses are relevant to us, how they apply to us. And to do that, we first need to remind ourselves That in saying these words about Moses, Stephen is making an argument. He's building a case because he has a definite point that he is working towards making. And that point being that the Jewish people have a long history of rejecting those whom God has chosen to deliver them. And the prime example of all of this is Moses. But it didn't stop with Moses. It's not isolated with Moses. Even before that, Joseph didn't stop with Joseph. It continued in Jewish history, culminating, folks, in the nation's rejection of Jesus as their Messiah and Savior. We know that this is where Stephen is headed, because when we jump ahead to verses 51 and 52, we see him using the Jewish people's rejection of Moses to condemn the Sanhedrin for doing the very same thing in rejecting the ultimate deliverer, Jesus Christ. And he accuses them of rejecting Christ for the very same reason the Jewish people of Moses' day rejected him. Notice again what Stephen says in verses 51 and 52, because we're going to camp here for a little bit. He says, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you're always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. So he's moving away from the history of the Jewish people to now. This is you. This is who I'm speaking to. This is right now happening. Now notice that the reason Stephen gives for this rejection of Jesus is that he says they, like their ancestors, continually resist the Holy Spirit. This is the reason, he says, that they are stiff-necked. What does that mean? He means they're so stubborn as to not bow themselves in submission to God. They're just stiff-necked. And this is why, he says, you're uncircumcised in heart and ears, meaning that you are as unresponsive to divine truth as uncircumcised pagans are. So here's the real question that we need to be asking. What does it mean to resist the Holy Spirit? That's where all this stems from. Because this, says Stephen, this is the ultimate reason the Jewish people rejected Moses and Jesus. And folks, it is the same reason that people today continue to reject Jesus Christ. Nothing really has changed. The human heart has not changed. So what does it mean to always resist the Spirit of God? It means to continually refuse to respond to the Holy Spirit when he speaks to us. 
And how does the Spirit of God speak to us? He speaks to us whenever the Word of God is preached or taught. But to resist the Spirit is to physically, you hear His Word spoken, but not allow those words to penetrate your heart, your mind, your soul, your life. This is precisely what Jesus meant when on many occasions He said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Not just hear physically, but let it penetrate Go beyond your physical ears. And why don't we allow these words to penetrate our hearts? It's because we're set in our sinful ways. So that we stiffen our necks and we refuse to bend in obedience and submission to God's word. In other words, we don't want to change and do what scripture says. And we're not going to change. That's what it means to resist the spirit of God. So how many people today have been raised... In Christian homes, they've heard the word of God over and over and over again. They've heard it from their parents. They've heard it from their Sunday school teachers. They've heard it from their pastors. They've heard it from their friends. Yet they continue to resist the Holy Spirit because they refuse to bend their stubborn hearts in submission to Jesus Christ. They know the truth. They've heard the truth many times. They've even experienced the conviction of their sin many times, but they continue to resist. It's not only those who have been raised in Christian homes. It's those who have had friends and loved ones witness to them over and over and over again, and they continue to resist. It's those who have been in churches that proclaim the gospel, and they keep coming to those churches and hearing gospel messages, and they continue to resist and resist and resist. Listen, this is exactly why the Jewish people of our Lord's day rejected him. They knew the prophecies about him from the Old Testament. They were not ignorant. They knew the prophecies. They saw his many miracles. And those miracles authenticated him as the Messiah. Others didn't come along and do miracles. They saw that. They heard the wisdom in his teaching that revealed him as none other than deity, for never did a man speak like this. And yet they would not bend their sin-hardened necks and submit to him, but continued to resist him, ultimately calling for him to be crucified. Just eliminate him. I don't want to hear that anymore. You see, to accept Jesus Christ, and we use that term, to accept Jesus Christ, but I'm not sure it's really understood, because it's not a matter of simply acknowledging and accepting the truth about him. Accepting Jesus Christ means to follow him. It means that there in your life, there will be radical changes made in your life. It means dying to yourself and your sinful desires. It means putting Christ first as your Lord and master. It means giving up idols that are in your heart. Those things that mean so much to us that we worship them because we feel we must have them and we can't live without them. That's an idol. And that, my friends, is why the majority of Jewish people back then and the majority of people today, both Jews and Gentiles, continue to resist the work of the Holy Spirit when the Spirit of God presents Christ to them through the preaching of his word. You see, they simply don't want Christ because they're not willing to give up their sin and live as the word of God tells them to live. Now, they might hide behind academics and make you think that it's really an academic issue and an intellectual issue. It is not. It is a moral issue. You see this illustrated very clearly in the ministry of John the Baptist. You remember John the Baptist was the forerunner of Christ. He was the one announcing to the nation of Israel, the Messiah is coming. He's even here. 
So repent of your sin. Forsake your sin. That was John's message. He preached the message of repentance of the Jewish people, declaring to them that faith in the Messiah demanded that they live a certain way, which was the evidence of genuine repentance. And notice what he told the people that day. I'm going to Luke chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. This was John's ministry. Here's what we read. So he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, they would be baptized by him as evidence that they had repented of their sin. Here's what he said. Not a user-friendly kind of message. He said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. At one point in his defense, Stephen said, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. (laughs) Those are some very strong words, and as we will see, they were not well received. Stephen also told the Sanhedrin the reason they rejected Jesus is that he says they, like their ancestors, continually resist the Holy Spirit. Application of the truth will do one of two things. Either the hearer will bow to the truth and submit to God, or they will reject the truth and often attack the truth giver. We shall see which of those happens in this situation, but we're going to have to wait. Pastor Steve Kreloff, our teacher on this verse-by-verse radio program, will be with us on the next installment of Stephen's Defense. So please, join us next time. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.